Church, we're starting a new series. Yes, and we're in the Old Testament. Can I hear a whoop for the Old Testament? Yes, the book of Daniel. I would encourage you if you uh, have uh, time outside of whatever is your sort of regular pattern of reading scripture, just to be reading along uh, slowly with us through Daniel. Uh, And we are going to be journeying through the book of Daniel in some order. And it will take an amount of weeks. Uh, We're not entirely sure how many at this point, but uh, I'm personally deeply excited for what uh, is ahead of us as we discover and ask the question, what does it look like to live lives in exile? But beginning, let me begin by taking you back to Manchester, not Babylon, Manchester in the 1990s. And I was walking down the corridor of Parswood High School. And uh, when, in haste, one of the year nine rogues, Curtis, brushed past me on his way to get somewhere. And in brushing past me, he saw me. And he looked at me, and at the top of his voice, he said, Husey, do you not believe in sex before marriage? Curtis, you see, had heard I was a Christian. And he had heard somewhere along, uh, somewhere else that Christians believe that sex is reserved for marriage. He was incredulous. He could not believe that such a thing was even possible, let alone desirable. Cut to last year. In our home, at our dinner table, we had some of our children's friends over for dinner. It was legal. It was pre-lockdown, folks. Don't worry. And we did what we do at the dinner table most nights. And we thanked God for the food that he'd set before us. We were thanking Jesus for the food. And I just prayed a simple prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for this food. Amen. And one of my daughter's friends, one of the two friends who were there, looked at me and said, Who's Jesus? She'd never heard the name before. Neither one of these stories would have been possible a few hundred years ago. Let alone, well, probably even 50 years ago, but certainly not a few hundred years ago. Because in the last 500 years or 500 years ago, a Christian ethic for life would have been assumed. And understanding of the Christian story and the name of Jesus would have been assumed. But we have lived and we are living through a seismic shift in culture. We are simply not where we were. And every Christian, every person who who professes Christ, who at some level is seeking to live their life according to the teaching, the pattern, the life of Jesus knows this. If you've told anyone that you're a follower of Jesus, you know what it's like to live in that tension. Christian faith, Christian devotion, Christianity itself simply does not exist in the same privileged position that it once did in our culture. Increasingly, as we'll see today, Christian devotion is being pushed to the margins. And that's part of a wider shift. And in an attempt to explain these, as I've said, seismic shifts in culture that we've seen over the last 500 years, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor wrote a weighty tome, which I haven't even dared purchase, let alone open and dare to read. The book is called called The Secular Age, and in it he explains, and I quote, how 
in a relatively short period of time, did we go from a world where belief in God was the default assumption to our secular, for secularly, what might want to read post-Christian age, in which belief in God seems to many unbelievable. Where even as believers, we are doubters. Well, perhaps as a start, and there is, I'm just going to warn you now, there is a little bit of teaching in this. I really want to set us up for a series where we can get our preach on. This is perhaps a little bit more uh, teachy today. I hope it doesn't feel too much like your GCC history, if any of you uh, did that. But perhaps firstly what we need to do is to ask the question, how did, how did Christianity even get to a point of such privilege in our society? Because that just didn't happen in day dot. That took time. Uh, to be established. And initially, the reason and the way that Christianity, uh, the Christian story in the church, in fact, arrived at a place of privilege and power in society was through the success of the message of the gospel. You know, uh, at Pentecost, as we're about to sort of in a few weeks look at, we have 120 disciples thereabouts gathered in an upper room praying, waiting on and believing that the Spirit of God will come. And in the next 300 years, we move from those 120 disciples to what some scholars uh, posit could have been up to 53% of the Roman Empire Christianized. If that doesn't make you almost fall off your chair, you weren't listening. 120 people to almost 53% of the Roman Empire. And this extraordinary success was not achieved by power games being played by people in positions of influence, but by the gospel of the kingdom and the blood of the martyrs. And then something quite miraculous happened. The Roman emperor Constantine was converted, or so he claimed. As a result, he signed a document called the Edict of Milan in 313 AD. And this is an agreement to give Christians legal status. Up to this point, they'd been a pariah. Something you would find on the bottom of your shoe and wipe off. But here he, he established them, if you like. And he began to divert funds which previously had gone to pagan temples into the church overnight. Making the church not just official, but scandalously rich. A movement now, not of a minority, but, but of power and of privilege. This movement which had been grassroots, underground and persecuted, became powerful and privileged. The minority became, by the stroke of a pen, the majority. And this phase in culture is known as Christendom. This was a massive moment. The church of power was born. And as a consequence of the benefits now available, there was, uh, quoting here Rodney Stark, a sociologist and historian, I love this phrase, there was a stampede into the priesthood. Funny that. Many of the church's highest offices were now taken by the aristocracy, many of whom were bishops who were consecrated as bishops before even being baptized. Staggering. Listen to this. I want the weight of what I'm about to say to connect with you. For the first time, it became possible to be a cultural Christian. 
That's massive. That's massive. Up to that point, to be a Christian was to be swimming against the current, swimming against the tide. And here in that moment, you could have a bit of this and a bit of that. And that situation, Christendom became the norm in the West over the next thousand and more years. Christianity held not just a position of influence, but actually of dominance. And it used that dominance to crush its enemies. But this is no longer the case, is it? And while the way of Jesus is exploding across the world, particularly in uh, the developing world, in the West it's in decline. Or at least one form of it is. The form of church that is in decline is the form which began with Constantine. Cultural Christianity is dying. But the church isn't dying. The church of Jesus Christ is not in decline. Globally that's the case. But even in this nation, Christendom is dying. And I want to say today and over these next few weeks, we don't need to be afraid of that. Christendom needs to die so that the church might be reborn. And so we experience our faith, we experience Christianity being pushed to the margins. How might we understand this movement of Christian faith from the center to the margins? Well, what I want to argue over these next few weeks, and probably uh, there will be an argument through the series, I hope it's not going to be quite as sort of teachy as this, although I'm quite enjoying myself at the moment. I want to suggest that the best biblical framework that we can lay hold of to understand the cultural moment that we're in is the framework of exile. We need to understand what exile is. What is exile? Well, let's just read again those verses from Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, they don't name them like they used to, do they? If I, I, was, I was just yesterday... Uh, yesterday I was at a football tournament with my son and uh, a child there playing football was named Manaki. And I thought, that's awesome. That was one of the opponents of Augustine, I believe. I could be wrong. What an amazing thing to call a child. Anyway, this one was Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Along with some of the articles from the temple of God, these he carried off into the temple of his God in Babylonia, and put in the treasure house of, the, of God, of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, or Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified in this, to serve in the king's palace. If we have any young men descri- described thus in this room, stand would you now? Or set up your online dating profile. I want you to imagine in this moment being a young 13 to 15 year old young Jewish boy. And you're from the nobility and you know the people in power, you know the king and his family, and you're living in a time of cultural upheaval. Uh, you're used to living in the kingdom of Israel, it's all you've ever known, but you see it crumbling around you and there comes a moment, and that moment comes in 597 BC when the kingdom falls. And the king is dragged off into exile along with all the articles from the temple, everything you'd seen used in the worship of God and it's taken in worship of a foreign god, the god Marduk, 
My duck, if you like, if you're from Nottingham. I did enjoy that one in my preparation this week. My duck, my ducky. We'll call him Ducky uh, from here on in. And if this work wasn't enough, you and a small group of your friends, the best of the best in the culture uh, of Jerusalem, you are taken off along with the king, effectively into into slavery. And you have to live in a foreign land, an unknown place, a place unlike anything you'd ever experienced before. This is exile. It's being ripped from your homeland and living as an outsider. That's what exile is. Living away from home, making your home away from home. But exile in the scriptures doesn't begin in Daniel. In fact, we see the first exile in the scriptures, don't we? In Genesis 3, as as Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, they're given this place of promise and protection and fruitfulness, and they're given a commission to extend and explore the goodness of God into all of creation, but they disobey, they wander away, and so they're exiled. They're sent away from home, and you know that the one way, and perhaps the best way to understand the whole of the biblical witness is that it's God's attempt to wrestle back home for his people and to bring his people back into the home for which they were created. That's the story of the Bible, and so God saves, he rescues, he names a man called Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless you. Seven times you will be blessed. A replacement of every curse that had been on God's people from Genesis 1 until Genesis 12. And so he makes a people through Abraham. A people who will be a blessing not just to Abraham's children but to the whole of the world. And that people go into slavery in Egypt fast forwarding a bit and God rescues them. He brings them into their own homeland. This people Israel, they become his people And he says, I saved you, not just because you were special. In fact, you weren't special. You're special because I love you. And I love you because I love you. He takes them out of the exile, if you like, the the slavery of Egypt and the empire of Egypt, where they've been stumped into Pharaoh's boot, and he takes them into the promised land. And eventually a kingdom's established within this place, but over time we see the, the creep of apathy, the creep of Christendom, if you like. The creep, the trappings of power become too alluring, too persuasive, and the people of God wander away from devotion and service to God. It's the same thing that happened after Constantine. It's the same thing the church is trapped in today, loving the things of God and the power of the world more than God himself. And so God... There's the only thing he can do to wake them up. He lets them fall into the hands of Babylon. Because he hates them? No. Because he loves them. He must have the heart of his people back. And so he sends them away into exile. Christ comes as the deliverer. He's the one. He's the true king. 
And he comes to bring his people home to God. Home into the the garden again. Into the presence again. And nonetheless, even though his early, early disciples and we disciples experienced that, still in the New Testament we see exile referred to. We read in 1 Peter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, God's chosen, God's people. Exiles scattered through the province Provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. What Peter is saying is that even though you've been brought home in Christ Jesus, you're still exiles because you're living in a foreign land. Because exile isn't fundamentally a geopolitical reality. It's not about space and power. It's a spiritual thing. And finding home isn't about bricks and mortar. Author Paul Tabori says that exile is being an outcast within one's own country. This is our situation today as the church. We are in exile. If you don't know that, you haven't been paying attention or your faith hasn't become public. John Tyson says, to understand exile, we've got to understand there are three major shifts. And they are firstly, the shift from a majority to a minority. Now numerically, we're aware we've just done a census. Let's, the data's not yet in. And some of you are probably excited about reading that and others perhaps not. But what we've seen over the last 50 or so years is a decline in lots of measurements of church attendance. The number of nons, people who don't have a professing faith, now outweighs people of faith in this nation. Indeed, as disciples of Jesus, we understand that we are in a minority group. And each of us will experience this if we're in the workplace, if you're in university. Even some of us will experience this in our families. That is the norm now. Movement from a majority to minority. There is the movement from the center to the fringe. Christians have been used historically to positions of power. We still do have positions of power. We still have bishops in the House of Lords. It'd be interesting to see how long we have that position of power. But that is waning. That is waning. We've had huge power in education. You know, many of the educational institutions in this country were actually started by the church. And yet even the ones that were started by the church, of which there are many, 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 Even they are turning away from that Christian foundation if they haven't already completely done so. So look at it in politics. Do you remember? Many of you don't because you weren't alive. But I was, and I remember, uh, after New Labour swept to power in 1997, remember that moment? I think it was Alistair Campbell. Some of you can correct me afterwards. Uh, The PR guru in that government famously quipped, we don't do God. That right there, that is the secular, that is the post-Christian framework in four words. We saw Labour's current leader, just going to have a bit of fun at his expense here, Keir Starmer, delighted momentarily to be seen at Pastor Agu's church. Until he realized a little bit later that Pastor Agu and his church held an orthodox view on human sexuality, at which point he ran a mile, which was good practice for his visit to that pub last week. Generally speaking, people have not minded what people of faith believe as long as they kept to keep it private, but that is changing. That is changing. 
Even private beliefs will be prosecuted. We're moving from the center to the fringe. We've moved. We are moving from the well-respected to the disrespected. Christianity used to be something which was, could be treated as a badge of honor. Amy and I spent three and a half years in the southern Orange County, southern California, Orange County. It was suffering for the gospel, let me tell you. Somebody had to do it. And so, you know, we put our hands up. It's amazing in that culture even how, how, how well-respected we were. That wouldn't be the case in every part of the States. But in that place it was, and it's very different. When we moved back to London, we experienced a completely different experience. And uh, some of you know I've recently taken up golf, and I have lessons because I'm not very good at it. Uh, I, I can hit the ball anywhere, but I just can't hit it where I want to hit it. And I was having a lesson with my, uh, this coach, and, um, and I, he asked me halfway through, just trying to make small talk, so we didn't have to talk about where the ball was going. And he said, what do you do? And I said, a vicar. I said, I'm a vicar. And he said two words in response, and I'm not going to say either of them. I couldn't repeat them now. My uh, friend is a pastor, another story which made me laugh. Uh, and his son went to a new school, and his son's got a scholarship to this new school. It's the kind of school where uh, the rich, kids of the rich and the famous go. They're, they're, some of the parents are rock stars, some are comedians, some are politicians, and so on and so forth. My friend is a vicar. And, uh, and his friends, after a while, just started to ask what his dad did. You know, is your dad a politician? Is he a rock star? Is he, what does he do? And uh, my friend's son said, I don't know. I don't know. And they thought he was sort of playing it shy. And so they started to, they started to wonder and they started to think that he was probably in government. And so my friend's son said, yeah, I think so. And this whole mythology is developed, and I think at this point, his friends uh, think that his father is a spy, maybe James Bond. This is the norm these days. Maybe for many, faith is an oddity. For some, it's an offense. The Christian way of life is increasingly offensive to the secular way of life. The chances are, particularly if you're young, then you have to be very careful about how you articulate faith amongst your friends. Because Christianity itself is seen as being toxic. I want you to hear me say this. I'm not complaining. This is not a complaint. That is not what I'm doing this morning. I am articulating the situation we find ourselves in. I actually believe we are in a moment of extraordinary hope and possibility. Because I believe in these moments God is going to get his church back. Let Let me just summarize. It used to be the case that if you were a believer in Christ in the West, especially if you were white, the situation has been different for racial minorities. We have to understand that. But especially if you were white, you were in the majority, you were in power, and you were well thought of. Now that situation's been turned on its head, and this means you're more likely to be in the minority, on the fringe, and thought of as weird or even dangerous. And this is where Daniel and his friends were. On the outside looking in. Powerless. But empowered. They had the only power that you needed. The power of God. And over the next few weeks I want us to ask the question. How can we thrive as exiles as those young men did? Or to put it in the words of Psalm, of the psalm we read earlier. In the title of my message 
How can we sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? Well, let's take the masks off to start with. The good news is that we need not be afraid. The church has always thrived in exile. Indeed, it was as a marginal movement that the church grew most rapidly to start with. And this is how it will grow again in the West. Because it is in exile that heroes are made. Not celebrities. God forbid that his church would have celebrities in it. But heroes. Miracles are seen. Do you ever wonder, maybe the reason we see so little of the power of God in the church is because we've become so obsessed with human power. God's people increase in number and in devotion. A new generation of prophets and champions emerge. We experience God's presence with us in new ways. And history is revealed and shown to be in God's hands. These are the fruits of exile. And part of my question to the church, to us today, is do you want those things more than you want a return to the 1940s? And there's one more fruit. It's the one I've been saving to last. You know, we all live with nostalgia to some degree as Christians. As humans, the word nostalgia is one of my favorite words. It means an ache for home. And nostalgia is a direct result of exile. Every human being feels nostalgia. There is the ache. Some have called it the God-shaped hole. But every Christian will experience a nostalgia, an aching for home, an ache for God. But we as the church are not to be nostalgic for the 1950s, for a return to a a pre-Christendom reality. The ache we have within us is an ache for a, a return to our home in God. And the greatest gift of exile is that it is in exile that we discover that our true home was never in the world. Our true home is in God. And we are able to survive and thrive, come what may, because of our connection to God and his presence. And my prayer for us as we take this journey together into the wild of exile, into the wilds of Daniel and his friends, that we would be ready to journey into the home that is ours in God. Are you ready to come home? Let's pray.